0: Hello and welcome to the first 200 years of Allens, the podcast series. I'm Talia Rodriguez and I'm Melissa Camp. This year, Allens turns 200. Having begun in 1822 as a one-person legal practice in a modest cottage in Elizabeth Street in Sydney, Allens is now Australia's oldest law firm. Allens has grown with Australia, advising on many of the landmark economic and social events that have shaped the nation.
1: During this series, we'll be reliving some of the highlights from the first 200 years of Allen's and exploring their impact on our lives today.
2: It is the duty of the board to ensure that the powers of the banks are exercised in such a manner as will contribute to the stability of the currency and the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia.
1: This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Their systems of law and knowledge long predated that of the modern lawyers who arrived in Australia. And they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We hope you enjoy our stories.
2: Hello, I'm political historian and journalist, Norman E. In the history of Allens, one case stands out for the impact it had on both the nation and the firm. It was the fight to save Australia's private banks. This story takes place in the mid-1940s, just after the Second World War. During the war, the Australian government had introduced new banking regulations to ensure the stability of the economy. However, when the gunfire ceased and the troops returned home, Treasurer and soon-to-be Prime Minister Ben Chifley was reluctant to relinquish his newfound economic powers. According to his great-niece Jane Chifley, the desire for financial control was driven by his experience during the Depression.
1: They were in Bathurst in the 1930s and there were lines and lines of hundreds of men lining up to get the doll who didn't have work. And they said, look, he said, if ever I get the chance and I get into Parliament... He said, I'll do something, or bring in legislation to make sure this doesn't happen again. Partly why I think he wanted to nationalise the banks to just bring about that change where I think people were protected in their banking institutions, you know.
2: Spurred on by his desire to protect people, in March 1945 he put forward a banking bill to retain the emergency measures and extend the government's control over the banking system. Here's Reginald Pollard, who is a member of the Chifley government, reading from the introduction to the bill. It is the duty of the board to ensure that the powers of the banks are exercised in such a manner as will contribute to a. the stability of the
0: currency, b. the maintenance of full employment in Australia,
2: c. the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, and d. if there is a difference of opinion, then the bank must finally accept the treasurer of the Commonwealth decision of the day. This proposed banking bill sparked one of Australia's greatest political and legal battles. But despite protests from the banks, the controversial legislation passed with only minor amendments. And in 1947, Prime Minister Chifley moved to implement Section 48 of the Banking Act and force all government authorities to transfer their bank accounts to the Commonwealth Bank, which was then owned by the government, or the state banks. To the immense frustration of Chifley, the city of Melbourne successfully challenged this section. Chifley then struck back and, in one of the most controversial moves of any Australian government, announced his intentions to nationalise the banks. The public learned of this only in a terse 42-word statement issued on a Saturday. Karensa Sneed, a partner at Ellen's, explains.
1: Bank nationalisation means that the government takes ownership and control over the bank and the previous owners, usually shareholders, will lose their investment. Practically, this means that a government will either control the bank wholly or partially, either on a temporary or permanent basis.
2: Chifley's plan wasn't just considered controversial by the banks. It was also considered controversial within his own party, despite having been Labour policy since 1921.
0: My maternal grandfather, Edgar Bartrop, was Ben Chifley's advisor when he was treasurer and prime minister in World War II. That's
2: Tim Harcourt, professor and chief economist at the University of Technology, Sydney.
0: My grandfather used to stay at the Hotel Currajong. Ben Chifley as Prime Minister famously never stayed at the lodge, he stayed in the Hotel Currajong, that's where my grandfather stayed. And they would walk together to the Treasury Block and Parliament House because they both smoked pipes. Canberra in those days didn't have that many people and even the postman had a horse I think, did things on horseback. So Chif, as he called him, and my grandfather he used to smoke pipes together and talk on the way. So I'd imagine that they had a pretty intense working relationship, but uh, they also had time to get to know each other. On their pipe smoking walks, you know, in terms of giving advice, his advice was that it wasn't economically necessary. Uh, it was after the war, people were wanting to get a bit of freedom back. They thought that wartime rationing was important and making sacrifices for the war was important, but they thought now it was the time to you know, loosen up and give people freedom again. And he just didn't agree with Chifley that the government should own all the banks. And that was that. My grandfather although had great respect for Chifley and thought he was a great Prime Minister he didn't always agree with him philosophically. Uh, he did believe there was a role for private enterprise. He himself was a real estate agent in Ballarat. He'd been seconded to work for Chifley during the war so he's a great believer in you know, the importance of the federal government during wartime. After the war, he thought that you needed to let private Enterprise do what private Enterprise did best, and he didn't think the government needed to own
2: the banks. Ellens was the official solicitor for the Bank of New South Wales, which is now known as Westpac, and stepped up to lead the charge on behalf of all the private banks in Australia. Norman Cowper of Allens began assembling the troops he needed to fight the biggest battle of his career. To lead the team, he chose a young Garfield Barwick, who later went on to become Chief Justice of the High Court. Their first step was to lodge an unprecedented application in the High Court to restrain the government from implementing the Act until its constitutional validity had been determined. Never before had a High Court application been lodged for protection from what was not yet a law. To maintain the effectiveness of their preemptive strike, the application was to be lodged at the last possible moment. According to Norman Cowper's daughter, Janet, this was a plan that almost backfired.
0: I heard this was almost their undoing. That afternoon, heavy rain brought Sydney traffic to a standstill And the team made it to the courthouse with only four minutes to spare before the window to lodge the application closed.
2: The High Court hearing lasted 39 days, Australia's longest ever High Court hearing, and found the legislation to be invalid. But Chifley was not ready to give up and immediately sought special leave to appeal to the Privy Council in London. The following month cowper and barwick departed australia for the hearing norman cowper's daughter janet remembers this moment well my parents
0: embarked on the stratheden the ocean liner i believe the journey from australia to london was going to take them about four weeks in total they were away from australia for almost a year
2: upon returning to sydney on the 26th of october 1949 Everyone gathered in the Bank of New South Wales head office on George Street to hear the verdict. As chance would have it, the radio telephone linked in Sydney was closed that day, necessitating special arrangements to deliver the news. A London taxi, with its engine running, waited outside the Privy Council to drive a messenger to Martins Bank in Whitehall, where a cable telegram was sent. In a historic turning point in public policy, two words appeared. Appeal dismissed. The banks had won and scenes of great jubilation ensued. As for Chifley, his great niece Sue Martin says that while it wasn't the result he fought for, he stood by his decisions.
0: He was uh, disappointed, but he still felt it was the right thing. You used to say if it's the right thing, you just go ahead and you do it. He was upset that he had trouble explaining the legislation to the people because he didn't have the media coverage to explain what he was doing. And I think he thought that, you know, they'd been through the war and, you know, people would appreciate what they'd been through
2: and do it. Had Ellens not been successful, the Australian financial system would look very different today. Corinza Sneed from Ellens, whom we heard from earlier, explained some of the practical effects bank nationalisation can have on a country.
1: The effect on the consumer is that there's reduced competition for banking products and services, there's less choice and there's a question about government involvement and how comfortable we as consumers are with that. There's a risk that, you know, competition could be reduced because you lose a private enterprise that has, you know, the motivation to innovate and evolve their product offerings and, you know, there have been studies that show that state intervention does have an impact on innovation, growth and productivity. New ways to introduce products or services to market, new ways to service the customer and all of those things that our banks have a very strong focus on now may not be front of mind for a nationalised bank because really the main driver as well for nationalisation is if the bank was in distress and so the priority for a government in those circumstances would be survival.
2: For Tim Harcourt, Professor and Chief Economist at the University of Technology, Sydney, it's hard to predict what may have happened if things went the other way. But he does have his suspicions.
0: I suspect that the Australian economy would not have developed to the same
2: extent. I've written a lot about the attempted at bank nationalisation over the years. It was a truly seminal episode in Australia's political, economic and constitutional history defining, as it were, the limitations of the Commonwealth power to intervene in the marketplace. For the much-loved figure of Ben Chifley, it represented not only a heavy defeat, but a rare lapse of judgment and a salutary lesson in how not to do public policy. His short statement of intent to nationalize the banks came out of the blue and, quite inexplicably, without any attempt to court public opinion. For a nation wearied by war and increasingly impatient with continuing regulation of everyday life, the Banks issue proved a godsend to opposition leader Robert Menzies, who made it a centerpiece of his 1949 election campaign, propelling the liberal country coalition into office and condemning the Labour Party to a generation in the political wilderness. I'm Norman Aburansson, Thank you for joining me to relive this highlight from the first 200 Years of Allens. Tune in to 200 Years of Allens for more moments that have shaped our nation, economy and society.